Well, I mean, I think I have to go back to the point that pretty much everything revolves around energy, right? It runs, it literally runs the global economy, you know, and I think it's particularly important for anybody to watch this sector as it literally affects the cost of everything else. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome back to Winter is Coming on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Tracy Shukart, partner and global energy and material strategist at Intelligence Quarterly. You may also know her as Shy Girl on Twitter. Today, we'll be discussing the broader impact of the European energy crisis across the commodities and financial markets. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hey there. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, well, really glad to have you here today. I've been looking forward to this conversation and talking with you about the energy crisis in Europe and hearing your perspective, because you're someone who's both a strategist and who's managing money across the global energy and materials markets. And I wanted to dig into the idea with you that all of these markets, all of these commodity markets are connected, and that the ripples from what's now happening in European energy markets are, or will likely soon be, felt across the broader commodity and financial markets. So I was hoping you could start us off there today uh, with taking us through how are other commodities currently being affected by what's happening in Europe? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously we're seeing secondary and tertiary effects across the entire commodity sector. Since last year, before the Ukraine invasion even, we saw energy prices already spiking in Europe. And people kind of forget that this really started well well before the Ukraine invasion. So as early as about last September, we started seeing spiking energy prices in the UK first, and that threatened small meat farms. And by October, natural gas prices got so high that that started affecting fertilizer companies that were in turn forced to curb production, which then caused problems in the meatpacking industry because they rely on the CO2 from the fertilizer companies. And then if we move to sort of the EU, last fall, we also saw the fertilizer industry being hit there too. As well, we saw iron, copper, nickel, aluminum, and zinc smelters, as well as stainless steel mills, were forced to either shutter entirely or curb production because those metals are very energy intensive. We saw aluminum probably the hardest hit throughout the year. I mean, we've seen closures all throughout, you know, since last fall up until very recently, but aluminum was probably the hardest hit and Europe produces about 11% of global production. So since fourth quarter of 2021, total of eight European countries have seen uh, aluminum closures. We've had five aluminum plants in uh, France, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Germany lead to reduced production, while we've had three in Spain, Netherlands, and Montenegro shut entirely. This means that 50% of European aluminum smelting capacity is currently offline right now. So obviously, that's going to lead ultimately to 
higher aluminum prices, higher metal prices all around because we're facing kind of these structural supply deficits. And moving forward, we know that these countries aren't really going to pull back on their green plans, right? They're gung-ho. So if we look at things like EVs that require massive amounts of aluminum, 250 kilograms per vehicle on average, you know, solar panels, the new generation solar panels require twice the amount of aluminum that the older generation did. And um, obviously, you know, wind turbines also require a ton of metal, a ton of aluminum, a ton of steel. And so this is going to just make all of these products more expensive. And if metals are more expensive, manufacturing is more expensive, products are more expensive. So it's going to ripple, you know, we're going to see ripple uh, ripple effects across all of these sectors. And it's amazing because, you know, people talking now about potential European recession, it sounds like with all those plant closures, a big part of industrial activity is already shutting down. And I find one of the fascinating things getting into the idea of, you know, the short and long-term impacts of this on the energy transition is we need the metals like aluminum to make the solar panels, to make the things we need for the energy transition, but we also need a lot of energy to make those metals. And so if we cannot have the energy to start with, it's hard to get the energy that we want to transition to. But I'm glad you brought up that idea of ripple effects and how these play out over time. Because, you know, I'm kind of trying to figure out what's the next shoe to drop here. And as someone managing money, how do you think about that timing in terms of managing risk and trading profitably when there's things that we can kind of foresee might be the next thing to happen, but, you know, it's not clear when. Right. Well, it always takes a lot longer for things to play out than you initially think they do, right? (laughs) Generally speaking, especially when you're looking at sort of these um, big macro ideas, they take a long time. And I mean, our major, our three major themes have been energy, metals, and agriculture. Obviously, that started with the energy sector and after the bottom fell out of the market in 2020 and oil went negative and the whole, you know, the whole world shut down. But, you know, even before that happened, you know, we were already seeing some supply problems in the energy sector that just kind of derailed it for six months or so. <laughs> but so, and in looking at these, if you start with, say, say, the energy sector, right? So you know that the energy is pretty much at the heart of everything, right? It makes everything run. So, you know, we knew that, or I knew that. This was going to eventually affect things that were very energy intensive, like metals, and particularly in the agriculture industry, which also is very energy intensive. You know, not only do you know they require fertilizer, which requires a, a lot of nat gas, but I mean, just to get their farms running requires a lot of you know diesel, kerosene, and different fuels of that of that nature. And so, really keeping, I think, the focus at energy at the heart of everything, then it was kind of seeing how long is it going to take to hit these other markets, right? And so that's kind of the timing issue. And again, it's, you know, not always easy to get right. But I think that is, I think that's what we're, what we're seeing right now. Yeah. And it's a little frightening, right? It feels like you're kind of, we're descending down through the hierarchy of needs. And we have this winter where it's, you know, trying to stay warm and keep the lights on. But you've brought up food a a few times now. It sounds like last year with the initial 
energy problems in the UK that had impacts on meat producers and meat packers. And with NatGas such a big component of fertilizer production, how concerned are you with what we'll see happen in food markets come next year? I think we're going to definitely have see a problem. We're already seeing, you know, we saw a fertilizer pr- uh, kind of spike this summer, right? And they kind of have pulled back since then. But if we look at those markets, those markets are starting to jump again because of all the the production that's being taken offline in the EU. And we're already experiencing, you know, some shortages in the US and we're not even at planting season yet. So looking at those markets, you know, I think that's going to play an even larger role in H1 of 2023 as we go into sort of planting season. But obviously when and I think your input, energy input costs are going to be higher. I mean, obviously we've seen energy pull way back, but I mean, still at $80, $85, that's very high for, you know, for the, for the norm. Let's, let's put it that way. So I think we're in to see higher energy prices for longer. We're going to see input costs for, you know, agriculture start to soar. And then, you know, we're also having, that's going to affect supply problems too, because we do have some other countries like Canada and uh, the Netherlands that want to cut back on fertilizer usage, whether or not that puts some farmers out of business, which then takes more food supply off the market. Because we look at like the Netherlands, like the number two global exporter in the world of food. And they're looking at a lot of farmers that could really be hurt by this and go out of business. So yeah, I mean, so... I think we barely scratched the surface as far as, you know, we talk about food prices have escalated, you know, are up 13% year over year. I would say probably they're higher, but that's what the government tells us that they are. So, but I think that's going to be higher for longer. And I think we probably haven't even started to scratch the surface of that yet. Right. Yeah, which makes it sound like the uh, the inflationary pressures are going to be with us from the the commodity side well into next year. And, you know, we've got the Fed coming out this week. So by the time this episode airs, we'll hear what the decision was. Looks like it's, you know, 75 basis points sounds baked in, according to a lot of analysts out there. But I wanted to ask you, because like sitting here in the US, you know, we've had this strengthening of the dollar. Right. And, you know, this, you know, this very strong dollar has been masking a lot of the impact of rising commodity prices on US consumers. You know, kind of look at the prices of gasoline at the pump, they're down, even though things like not gas prices are still up a bit, but nowhere near what the rest of the world's experiencing. And I was curious for your opinion on, you know, how big a deal do you think it is that we have this strengthening dollar at a time of rising commodity prices? And how does it affect how you're thinking about how this particular commodity price surge is going to play out? Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So honestly, let's start with that. There's often a prevailing notion that commodity prices are directly inversely correlated to the dollar. But so people are looking for, in other words, people are looking for if the dollar goes up, commodity prices go down. And certainly there are cases that that happens and there are points in time that that happens. But if you look over a long enough period, this is not the case for the most part. And especially when you're looking at supply side problems, as we've seen pretty much in energy and grain prices and based on industrial metals over the last two years really have been rising alongside of the USD. So when we have these structural supply deficits in all of these markets with a rather inelastic demand 
rather than, you know, other than shutting down the entire global economy as we did. You know, we're, con- we're going to continue to see rising commodity prices in face of a rising dollar. Now, this is, I mean, it's still, a, it's going to be a problem for the U.S., but it's going to be even a bigger problem for emerging markets. So I think that ultimately what we're really going to see, I think we're going to see a lot more, say, food protectionism, energy protectionism start coming into play, just as we've seen, just as recently as India just you know put a 25% export tax on their rice. And earlier this year, they even took, stopped exports altogether for a time being. So I think that this is going to, I think we're, we're going to see these kind of actions coming up more and more globally. Yeah. And it sounds, it's interesting when you think about what's happening in Europe right now, people who are in markets could see this coming for a while, even if you just looked at the, the, the wholesale prices, the futures market prices, you saw it coming, but it wasn't really until people started to get those utility bills in the mail and the prices got passed through to residential users and small commercial businesses that it really kind of hit the the public consciousness i think and forced a lot of policymaker reactions and i think you know maybe that's one thing we have to think about in the us is the rest of the world is probably seeing this before we are i would imagine and to get ready for some of these uh, political reactions but before i want to dig into some of that policymaker reaction with you but first I wanted to ask, you know, I was curious, I've always found it odd, you know, that in my experience when talking with like equity managers or bond managers, there's almost like it's socially acceptable for many money managers to know very little about commodities. (laughs) Sometimes it's seen as this kind of quirky, odd little market, even though it's so central to everything we do. And it's like in a way that I often have found that, you know, an equity manager has to have a basic understanding of the bond market and, and vice versa. And I imagine you talk to many different types of investment managers. And what do you think that they need to understand about what's happening in the commodity markets right now? Well, I mean, I think I have to go back to the point that pretty much everything revolves around energy, right? It runs, it literally runs the global economy, you know, and I think it's particularly important for anybody to watch this sector as it literally affects the cost of everything else. I mean, for most businesses, energy is one of the highest input costs from, you know, small businesses to large businesses. This factors into their bottom line and affects how they therefore conduct businesses. You know, earlier we kind of talked about the ripple effects of high natural gas prices affecting smelters that in turn affects manufacturing, which in turn affects global supply chains, (laughs) which in turn affects all aspects of business from transportation to food processing to utilities to consumer discretionary to healthcare, even to the tech industry. Um, and, you know, kind of expanding on this supply chain problem is right after the pandemic, we got just a glimpse of how supply chains could be interrupted and how they could affect businesses. And even many businesses and industries still continue to reel from these disruptions still today, right? If we just, if we take, for example, the oil industry, you know, it's, we're still having problems sourcing steel pipe and things of that nature. And so, and that's not the only business that's still having problems kind of sourcing materials. So if we look at that and take that as a whole and know that all of these things affect whatever business that you're kind of looking at, that you kind of want to invest in, 
then you kind of have to take into account how the commodity sector factors into how how do they do business. And if anything, you know, again, I think the energy sector I might be biased, but I think the energy sector should be of particular interest for you know any anyone uh, that's investing uh, globally in any equity market. Yeah, it is so central to everything we do, and I, I love the point you brought up about you know some of the takeaways from the supply chain issues that people learned about and people began to learn what supply chain means after the COVID shutdowns. And that the point that something can be essential, even if it's a low portion of costs. So, you know, right. the the silicon chip you need might not cost very much in the grand scheme of the price of a car, but if you don't have the right chip at the right time, you end up with thousands of brand new cars that don't work parked on a lot outside Detroit, right? <laughs> Exactly, that don't work, and then those, you know, and then those input costs go higher because we, you know, we had, you know, all those automakers fighting for a limited amount of chips, which you know, then we saw auto prices, you know, increase tenfold, and then we saw the used car market explode because new car prices got too high, so keeps on going down the chain, right? Yeah, absolutely, and that's like so. I, that's a great segue, and I'd love to know. What do you think policymakers need to better understand in this environment? Because I feel like there's also that there, there's not that focus on the scarcity right now of like, hey, there's like there's right. a lot of talk about prices and who's making too much profit and needs to reallocate that to somebody who's paying too much for fuel. But I don't see as much conversation of, wow, we're short a lot of what we need. Who's going to get it and who's not going to get it? Well, and that's a problem. And that's what they're kind of getting a little bit of taste from. You know, we have to realize that the source of the problem, the energy crisis, didn't just, even though we just started to see, you know, energy prices spike over the last year or so, this is because of poor policy decisions that started a decade ago, you know, in some cases, two decades ago, right? And so this has all just finally come to fruition because you know we had the right elements in place to kind of you know spark it off it was going to happen regardless but you know covid happened ukraine invasion happened so a lot kind of you know happened that just further exacerbated problems but i mean as far as policymakers need to look at they need to really understand that energy transition just doesn't happen overnight and the technology is just not there yet. Even though you want it to be, you can't base energy policy on, I hope that it's going to work out, right? <laughs> You're talking about billions of people. <laughs> you know, and I think that, you know, their big mistake was wanting to switch off fossil fuels right away and wanting to go, we're going to go wind and solar. And that's great, except for those are intermittent power sources. And the battery tech is just not there yet. So you still need fossil fuels as your base load power. And if you don't want, you know, and this is where natural gas is perfect role as a transition fuel, because it's much cleaner than say oil or coal. And I've been talking about this for years, actually, but they continue, you know, they continue to demonize the industry. And then on the flip side, nuclear, fantastic idea, right? This is super clean. It is the cleanest. It's the most energy dense, right? You have, you need a tiny amount of uranium to create enough energy that, you know, millions of gallons of oil. But 
the West has largely shied away from that. We haven't really done anything in the last two decades. You know, there haven't been a lot of upgrades. There hasn't been a lot of builds in the West. We know we have seen some in Africa. We have seen some in Asia, but we haven't in the West because we had Chernobyl. We had Fukushima. The West got freaked out and said, no, we don't, this is dangerous. And then the, we had the environmental groups come and say, but what about the radioactive waste? We're all going to die. You know, without people, I, I think really, there was just not a lot of education out there. And, you know, since, since those accidents have happened, um, there's still, there has been fantastic strides in nuclear energy. It's very different. You know, it's not ex the same plant that it was 20, 30 years ago that, that were built. So I think the thing is, is that I think that's sort of the media's fault too and government's fault too and how they portrayed this, right, without kind of educating people. So the best thing I think that they need to do is, well, what they're forced to do now is go back to the drawing table on nuclear. We've seen UK wants to start eight new uh, nuclear reactors. We see Germany deciding on and off whether to keep these last three on or off or on or off. But we are seeing more interest. We're seeing more interest in the U.S. You know, we just had California, for example, were to shutter their last nuclear plant. They're going to keep it open for another 10 years. So we're seeing some warming up to up to that. So I think that's good as far as policymakers are looking, you know, let's give them, I'm going to give them a little pat on the back. This is good that we're seeing policymakers kind of change their view on these sorts of kind of energy. And then if, and that's kind of the DM market side of it. And if we look at the EM, the emerging market side of it, I think the West really needs to stop interfering. You know, for example, just last week we had climate czar Kerry, you know, he was in Africa speaking. He said, do not invest in natural gas long term. And then, you know, for those kind of markets, this is just really unrealistic. I mean, cheap, abundant natural gas is a great transition fuel, although it's not so cheap right this second. But, you know, if they were to drill locally, it would. Because you have to realize over 600 million people, 43%, of Africa's population lacks access to any electricity. And most of them are in sub-Sahara Africa, which actually have a lot of resources that they could tap into. You know, and I think, you know, a lot of African countries kind of have been trying to argue against the West and basically say, this is unfair that you're trying to put us in a position that, you know, we're, we're just not at the same level as a, as a DM market. And so, you know, I think that policymakers there should continue to try to get investments for their oil and gas industry and to bring them out of poverty. But I think that the West really needs to, if they want to help them as far as, you know, uh, renewables are concerned, that's fantastic. But I think they should stay out of their way a little bit as, you know, you know, not get so involved in, in their energy policy. Yeah. And I, the thing I, find really interesting with energy policy that I don't think policymakers understand enough, and, and you brought this up talking about the energies are in the US, John Kerry, is investments in supply side infrastructure, whether it's opening up gas and oil fields, building nuclear plants, you do this if you plan on using it for a long time, you know, like 10, 20, 30, right. uh, 50 years. 
and it only economically makes sense if you're planning on using it for that period. So I've often heard like a lot of conversations with policymakers recently where it's like, well, you know, yeah, do this for three years and no one's going to do it for three years. And so like now we're kind of in this worst of all possible worlds we're seeing in Europe where energy is unreliable and incredibly expensive. And they're having to switch on all these coal burning plants, which is the last type of fossil fuel you'd want to use from a climate perspective. And so, you know, I guess as you're a, you know, you invest in companies and how do you get policymakers to see this need for, you know, 10, 20 years, like the more of that investor mindset that you have? Well, yeah, I fired them all. Hire <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of things that, you know, you know, every four years we would change administrations in the U.S. or four to eight years, depending. Right. And so I think that there's one, I think there's a lot of like changeover, but I think that's one of one of their problems. But I, I think you should hire people with experience, really. I mean, with more experience than we currently have. I mean, that's that's the only thing that I can think of because all these energy decisions that people are making are really from people not that qualified to make those sorts of policy decisions. They're all based politically. They're all politically motivated policies at, at this point um, because a bunch of bureaucrats got together and decided we're going to have this climate, you know, Paris Accord or, you know, this policy, that, you know, there's a lot of uh, accords out there right now. But and then everybody just said, OK, this is, you know, we're going to go with this. But nobody's well-versed enough to, to, to say, how, how are we going to get here? Not like, it's great. We want to get here. I love it. Great idea. Everybody wants clean energy. Everybody wants clean air. Everybody wants clean oceans. Everybody wants that. But how are we going to get there? You know, and that's kind of the, the missing point, I think, right now. And that governments need to, you know, have a bigger conversation with that or get together with people that have bigger problems and not just bureaucratic think tanks. Yeah. And when, I, when you look at the scale that's going to be needed to accomplish these things that we've committed to in policy, I just can't imagine doing it without being able to draw on the expertise of the energy industry, the mining industry. There's no one else who knows how to operate at that scale to do the things that we want to do. <laughs> and the scary thing is, is because it's being so demonized, they're fi- having a hard time finding labor in those markets. Those fields are dying. I mean, if you go to, you know, colleges these days, nobody wants to major in in those kind of things in the oil industry or the mining industry because it's dirty. It's got a bad connotation. And so, you know, that labor pool is also dying, too. And so, um, you know, we need to, I think I have more outreach programs with like start enticing those people to be in those industries. We need more engineers in, in that in those fields and whatnot and get them together and move forward because this is not going to fix itself by itself. And as you can see, it's self-destructing before our very eyes right now. So we just need a we need a whole redress of of the situation, which hopefully I hope that's sooner than later at the pace of things right now. Right. Definitely need it sooner than later. And we need a lot of <laughs> young people to get in to working on these problems. And, you know, you, you spoke about outreach and 
I wanted to to ask you because you know you've developed a very large, I think it's almost a quarter of a million followers on Twitter, where you post as Shy Girl, which I imagine is for Chicago. I think yes. where you got your start, as many commodity folks have. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to ask you, why did you start posting on Twitter? And what do you see as the benefits and challenges of that level of social media presence and engagement? Well, I started really because I had just moved to Chicago. I didn't really know anybody. And I had just started in the industry at CBOT at a grunt job. Um, but And I just thought, you know, it would be a good way because I, I had a friend that was like, you should go on. There's a lot of financial people on there. And I was like, okay. And so I kind of just went on to shy, you know, shy girl. Cause I wanted to be anonymous. I like never had, I didn't have my name on there for years. And so really that's how I just really started. And I started talking to financial people and, you know, just kind of my circle grew. I remember, you know, when I got like a hundred people following me, I was like, I can't believe a hundred people want to hear what I have to say. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> and so I've been on, you know, just grows organically from, from there, I guess. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I think it's really beneficial for everybody. I think I know that it can be very toxic and people talk about that, the toxicity a lot, right. Because there's a lot of hardcore and Things. But I think FinTwit generally, or financial Twitter, FinTwit, is a really good place to, you can meet people, you can see, I mean, I think there's a lot of good to be found there. There's a lot of good advice. There's a lot of ton of good information. You know, there's a lot of people that you can learn from. You know, I specialize in commodity markets. I don't know that much about the bond markets, say, you know, I can follow a bunch of bond people. And learn all about bonds, you know what I mean? Or I can follow a bunch of people and, you know, specialize in healthcare. And I can, you know, find out about all the healthcare companies. You know, you know, anybody can do that. So that's where I really think that it's really beneficial because you can learn a lot from everybody else. You just have to sidestep the the toxic people because there's always those people in there that kind of want to start fights and kind of want to whatever and so you know i think the best engagement with those people is no engagement (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like great advice but it is it's really amazing that you've you've been able to create and form this network because you know when i got started in commodities it was working you know in one of the big banks at goldman and yeah like one of the cool things about those types of environments is that you get to work with lots of different people with different backgrounds, economists, bond traders, equity traders, commodity people, and different clients. But it's cool to be able to do that without having to be inside a company where the the, the client relationships and the people who work for the company are kind of defining that network that you're in. And instead you can, you know, more open source it and create your own. Well, exactly. And you get views from all different Exactly, you know, all different companies, all different kinds of traders, all different, you know, I mean, just there's a ton of information out there. Just if you're new to Twitter, just wade through it. It's worth it in the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I'm curious, was there like, was there a certain event that occurred that you were discussing a lot on Twitter that, you know, you all of a sudden first started noticing, wow, a lot of people are listening to my thoughts on this? Or was it more gradual over time? I think it was really more gradual over time. It took a long time to get to like 50,000 or something. And then it kind of just grows from there. That exponential growth. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been on Twitter. Well, I've been on Twitter. Well, 
since like I don't, 2009, I think. Um, you know, I started in the industry a little bit before then, but you know, I, that's a lot of, that's a lot of dedication on <laughs> Usually people are taking a break at some point and <laughs> going right? on a Twitter sabbatical. That's, that's a lot of dedication. Yeah. I'm like, what is that? I'm like 13, 14 years. That's crazy. So once again, hard work and persistence comes to the forefront. <laughs> But uh, I know I know you're gonna have to go in a few minutes. But I wanted to ask you um, while you're here. You know, there's a lot happening in the commodity space. Obviously, we've talked about many of those things. But I wanted to think like a little bit longer term. So thinking, you know, beyond this winter, out over the next few years, how do you see the outlook in the commodity space, and and where are you looking for opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think the sector is just starting. You know, we're just starting to see the explosion of problems. I think that um, the problems that have been created are definitely not going to be fixed in the, any time, like the near term. So, you know, I think for I think this is going to be a strong sector for the rest of the decade, at least. Um, is kind of where I'm looking at because it took us that long to get into this mess. It's going to take us twice as long to get out of. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think, but if, you know, kind of on a shorter term, you know, I'm kind of looking at agriculture and, um, 2023 and I think metals will really hit probably back half of 2023 into 2024, right. As soon as some of this energy sector calms down a little bit, I think that's going to metals will be the next freak out if, if that makes sense at all. Um, so I think, I think this sector is really strong. I think there's plenty of opportunities to be had out of the current situation, even though the situation is not great. Right. And I'm curious, why, why do you see metals after agriculture? I'm just curious what the sequence of events you're thinking about is. I think that everybody's going to be right now. It's going to take like, it's going to take at least a year, year for Europe to figure out its energy flow. Mm. Right. And so, after they kind of do that, that's going to exacerbate the metal problem even more. And then they're going to have to start focusing because right now their focus is on how do we get flows here, right? How do we get LNG here? How do we get oil and gas if we embargo Russia in December? So right now, how do we build out, you know, they need, well, they think that they say two to three years to build, you know, LNG space, but you know, that's going to take a lot longer than they think. But anyway, their primary focus right now is on how to get energy flows to them to replace the flows that are not Russia related or that are Russia related. So I think that the metals are going to take a little bit more for that when they shift their policy back around to really focusing on EVs and getting their manufacturing back up because right now their manufacturing is shutting down. So as soon as, you know, they kind of get that house in order, their energy house in order a little bit flow wise, I think that they're going, that's going to be the next problem because they're going to realize, well, here are still our, our, you know, green policy goals and, oh my God, we don't have enough metals either. And oh my God, we just shut down, you know, we just curbed production for two years. And so that's why I think that's going to take a little bit longer. I think you're going to find oppor- huge opportunities in agriculture just kind of in that. Well, I think that's that will continue as well. Let me preface. That will continue as well. But I think the next kind of surge you're going to see is going to be in that 2023 where we have, because that's kind of immediate. We have, you know, planting, spring and summer planting is going on in 
we're just not going to have enough fertilizer. So that's kind of the, the only reason. But I think that, and you know, all three sectors are going to play a huge role over this next decade, at least. That's a long time. It'll keep very interesting. <laughs> any uh, any near term catalysts you're looking at of that's going to tell you uh, how bad this gets or whether uh, we might skate through in the uh, short term? Well, <laughs> well, I obviously, uh, you know, I'm focusing on energy flows right now because I think that's really the most important thing that we need to look at is, you know, because Germany just came out and said, well, we have enough gas. We're, ne- we're at 90 percent, you know, storage. Yay. But that'll last us through winter, which I've been saying that all summer. It's just, you know, it's all about flows. So really right now, we should be focusing on global energy flows. No matter what, I think Russian barrels are going to stay on the market more so than anybody thinks. That's just what is going to happen because other countries are going to take advantage of that discount regardless. So really, I would be focusing on you know, how that energy flow space is revolving. If you to use as a gauge on how quickly we can sort of get out of this mess, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll be watching the near term flows and longer term. It sounds like this is going to be a very interesting space for the next decade or more. So thanks for sharing your ideas and thoughts with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Tracy Shukart, partner and global energy and material strategist at Intelligence Quarterly. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week with Bill Perkins, founder, managing partner and head trader for Skylar Capital. We'll be discussing his trader's perspective on natural gas power and carbon markets in Europe. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.